We have been studying in these lessons these past few Sundays the Judeo-Christian heritage of our nation. Last week we looked at some of the founding fathers and we looked at examples from the life of Patrick Henry and George Washington. And the point we <clears throat> excuse me, the point we made last week was that revisionist historians want to minimize the Judeo-Christian heritage of these United States. They want us to believe that our founding fathers were atheists, deists, and agnostics. The statements we looked at last week, the ones we examined, showed that these founding fathers had a deep and abiding faith in God. Now, this morning I want to begin by sharing with you another example from the life of George Washington. It's May the 12th, 1779. Washington is being visited at his Middlebrook military encampment by an Indian delegation. It was the chiefs of the Delaware Indian tribe. They brought three youths to be trained in the American schools. This is they, the assurance that they received from General Washington. You do well to wish to learn our arts and ways of life, and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you a greater and happier people than you are. Congress will do everything they can to assist you in this wise intention and to tie the knot of friendship and union so fast that nothing shall ever be able to loose it. And I pray God he make your nation wise and strong. Now, again, let's do something we've been trying to do in all of these lessons and use a little common sense. Does what Washington said to the Delaware Indian tribes sound like the ramblings of a deist? He says, you do well to learn above all the religion of Jesus Christ. Does he sound like an advocate for the separation of church and state as the secular progressives of the 21st century would have us to believe? Now... He assured those chiefs, Congress will do everything they can to see that this happens. To see that what happens, that you learn well, above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. George Washington's inauguration. You know, we see inaugurations today, and they include demonstrations, and they include setting fire to things, and all kinds of silliness. You know what George Washington's inauguration included? A two-hour worship service at St. Paul's Cathedral. And here's a quote from George Washington's inaugural address. The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. So was George Washington an atheist? Was he a deist? And the answer is a resounding no. The evidence is overwhelming that George Washington was faithful to Orthodox Christian beliefs. But, in the event that we think Washington was in the minority, let's look at some other examples of other founding fathers. Our second president, a man by the name of John Adams, he was a member of the First and Second Continental Congresses in 1774 and 1775. 
He served as U.S. Minister to France in 1783. Along with John Jay and Ben Franklin, John Adams signed the Treaty of Paris. The Treaty of Paris was the treaty that officially ended the Revolutionary War. John Adams was the first president to actually occupy the White House at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. February 22nd, 1756, a young man, as a young man of only 20 years old, John Adams made this entry into his diary. Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book, and every member should regulate his conducts by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, frugality, and industry, to justice, kindness, and charity towards his fellow men, and to piety, love, and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia, what a paradise this region would be. He talks about Almighty God. Does that sound like the dream of an atheist or a deist? As president, John Adams recognized the vital role that Christianity played in the well-being of a nation that was rooted in personal liberty. He wrote this on October the 11th. That would be today. 1798, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. I'm read that again. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And guess what? We are seeing the proof of those words in our nation today in 2020. We have many people in our nation, many of them in positions of power, who have absolutely no moral compass whatsoever. They will lie, cheat, steal, and do anything else necessary to achieve and to keep power. They have unbridled ambition and avarice, which is a fancy word for greed. They do not consider themselves governed by the Constitution. What did Adam say about the Constitution of the United States? It was made only for a moral and a religious people. And what we have today is an overabundance of immoral, irreligious people in our country and even serving in our government. Here's another note from history about our second president, John Adams. He wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson, our third president, on June 28, 1813. In the letter he wrote, The general principles on which the Father achieved independence 
were the only principles in which that beautiful assembly of young gentlemen could unite. And what were these general principles? I answer, the general principles of Christianity in which all these sects were united, and the general principles of English and American liberty in which all these young men united, and which had united all parties in America in majority sufficient to assert and maintain her independence. Now I will avow that I then believe and not believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God and that those principles of liberty are all unalterable as human nature and our terrestrial mundane system. John Adams. He had a cousin by the name of Samuel Adams. And Samuel Adams did more than just have a beer named after him. Samuel Adams was known as the father of the American Revolution. He created the Committees of Correspondence in 1772. Do you remember reading about those in American history? The Committees of Correspondence were created to have trusted communications up and down the East Coast. Samuel Adams also instigated the Boston Tea Party. He also signed the Declaration of Independence. What about his faith? Was this father of the American Revolution an atheist or a deist? Here are some selected writings of Samuel Adams. <clears throat> this is an excerpt from an article, November 20th, 1772. The title of the article was, The Rights of the Colonists as Christians. The right to freedom being the gift of God Almighty. The right to freedom being the gift of God Almighty. The rights of the colonists as Christians may best be understood by reading and studying carefully the institutions of the great, great lawgiver and head of the Christian church, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. This man, Samuel Adams, believed our rights were a gift from God. He also believed something else. He believed that those rights that were a gift from God were outlined in the New Testament. It was this man, <clears throat> Sam Adams. On the second day of the first meeting of the Continental Congress, he made a proposition to the assembled body. And you know what the proposition was? that they open the sessions with prayer. On October the 4th, 1790, he wrote the following letter to his cousin, John Adams, the vice president. Here's what he said. Let divines and philosophers 
statesmen and patriots unite their endeavors to renovate the age by impressing the minds of men with the importance of educating their little boys and girls, of inculcating in the minds of youth, listen to it, the fear and love of the deity and universal philanthropy. And in subordination to these great principles, the love of their country, of instructing them in the art of self-government, without which they never can act a wise part in the government of societies, great or small. In short, of leading them in the study and practice of the exalted virtues of the Christian system. Wow. The importance of instructing young minds in the fear and love of the deity and love of country. Just exactly the opposite of what young men and young women are learning in our indoctrination centers in this country today. Finally, this is what Sam Adams wrote in his last will and testament. Principally, and first of all, I resign my soul to the Almighty Being who gave it, and my body I commit to the dust relying on the merits of Jesus Christ for the pardon of my sins. Now, if you dig deep, I might not agree, and you might not agree, with the theology of Sam Adams. But he is hardly an atheist or a deist. And yet this is what revisionist historians, and this is what secular progressives teaching in our universities and colleges and public school classrooms today would have you believe about the founding fathers of this nation. Now, here are some other thoughts about some of our other founding fathers. John Jay. Now, I find this particularly interesting when you consider that there is so much noise right now surrounding the appointment of a woman by the name of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. John Jay was appointed by President Washington as the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. John Jay was a member of the First and Second Continental Congress. He helped to write the Constitution of the state of New York. He served as the governor of New York from 1795 to 1801. Now, these are his civic, some of his civic duties. He did other things in addition to his civic duties. He was elected president of the Westchester Bible Society in 1818. He was elected president of the American Bible Society in 1821. On October the 12th, 
1816, John Jay issued this admonishment. Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers. And it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. I wonder if a senator would say the dogma lives loudly within him. Just a question. Are you familiar with Dr. Benjamin Rush? He was a patriot, a doctor, an educator, and a philanthropist. Dr. Rush served as a member of the Continental Congress in 1776 and 1777. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. In 1774, Dr. Benjamin Rush helped to found and was president of the Pennsylvania Society for Promoting the Abolition of Slavery. He helped found and he was president of the Philadelphia Bible Society. In his work, A Plan for Free Schools, written in 1787, Dr. Benjamin Rush counseled the following. Let the children be carefully instructed in the principles and obligations of the Christian religion. This is the most essential part of education. In a letter to Jeremy Belknap, this is July the 13th, 1789, Dr. Rush wrote the following. The great enemy of the salvation of man, in my opinion, never invented a more effectual means of extirpating Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind it was improper to read the Bible at schools. And let me see. The Bible is read in our schools today how often? It's not. And yet, one of our founding fathers says, the great enemy of mankind is not reading and making it improper to read the Bible at schools. Dr. Benjamin Rush was the, one of the most outspoken patriots concerning Christian principles. Here's the truth. And this is a truth that most don't want to make known today. The overwhelming majority of the colonists held Christian beliefs. Of the 250 men that could be considered as founding fathers, 238 held Orthodox Christian beliefs. That is according to the historian David Barton. But, who do you hear about the most? Who do the revisionist historians want to talk about more than any other founding fathers? They want to talk about, and they constantly refer to, and they constantly quote from, those considered to be the least religious of our founders. Do you know who the low, those considered to be the least religious would be? Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. 
Those are considered to be the least religious of our founders. And yet, though they were considered the least religious of our founding fathers, they still knew way more Bible than many who and most who consider themselves Christian today. They also held something else. They did not hold to a secular worldview that people have today. They held to a biblical worldview. Now, during the Constitutional Convention of 1787, they were gathered to write the Constitution of the United States. And this will come as a big shock to you. But when representatives from all the colonies came together and the Founding Fathers were all there and they were writing the Constitution, there was some disagreement. There were disagreements between large and small states. There were disagreements between north and south. Some of that still goes on. And the disagreements between large and small states, the disagreements between north and south, were about to stop the progress of the entire Constitutional Convention. It was about to just bring it to a screeching halt. Franklin got up and gave a very famous speech there in that Constitutional Convention. And here are some excerpts of that speech that Franklin gave. He said, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth. That God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, that the sacred writings say that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded. And we ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down to future ages. And what is worse... Mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business, and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. Franklin. Admittedly, yes, one of the least religious of our founding fathers. The man who's actually called irreligious by revisionist historians. 
Franklin was the man behind having prayer in the Congress. Men like Franklin and Jefferson were the least religious of our founding fathers. And yet, that is a relative comparison. They were not men that were void of faith. If you took Franklin and you took Jefferson, and you compared them to modern standards... They would be recognized as men with a great knowledge of the Bible and also as men with a great reverence for the Scriptures. Now, what I've gone through is a sampling of the writings of our founding fathers. But this sampling is sufficient to show just how desperately some in our country today are trying to take us away from our heritage in America. Our heritage of Judeo-Christian values. Our heritage of values and ideals that have their basis in the Scriptures. Now, as we continue this and we go through this study, we're going to look at and we'll see also how some of our leading educational institutions have abandoned completely their historic principles and how they have lost total sight of their roots and their founding. And we're going to also look at some specific assaults against Christianity and religion that are going on in our country today. Our time is gone. Until we're together again, may the Lord richly bless and keep you is our prayer in Jesus' name.